Let's bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father Yahweh, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of the day. We thank you for all that you provide. We pray, Father, that you would help us understand the gravity of this day, the, the holiness of this time, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It is indeed a special time, a time that you have set apart to congregate, to, to fellowship, to praise you, to worship. And Father Yahweh, we give you praise, we give you thanks, we, we recognize your greatness today. And we certainly pray that your blessings and your presence would be here, would bless us, would bless those here, would also bless those abroad, uh, bless those who uh, could not be here today. We know that not everybody can physically be here while they're fasting as they're commanded to within the word. We pray that your blessings again would be upon your people today, and we ask this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Well, you all may be seated. It is again a Technical difficulty here. No. So I am not seeing what we need. <laughs> There's always something. I so I'd uh, like to uh, welcome everybody to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Very, very special day based on Yahweh's calendar. You know, this is the most important solemn feast I believe we find in the Word. In fact, as the, uh, we find, the uh, Jews, they consider this to be the holiest day of the year, as uh, I am inclined to agree with. Now, as we see in the Bible, Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness, and it's a day of reconciliation. We find this, I believe, in both the Old Testament, and I believe that we find this prophetically, pointing to the return of Yahshua the Messiah. You know, on this day, we know that Yahweh forgave the sins of Israel. He, he forgave, he removed the sins from the camp. And we also find in the Old Testament prophets that Yahshua will do the same, I believe, again when he returns for his people Israel. We're going to see that as we go through this message. I want to begin today, though, so I'm going to need some help with the slides, I guess, to advance the first slide here. Leviticus 23, verse 26 and we're going to begin there with, with a beginning. And uh, there's two slides here, so you can advance with me. It says, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Unto the tenth, the day of the seventh month, that there shall be a day of atonement. A day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. And you shall do no work in that same day. It is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before Yahweh Elohim, for whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day. Now this shows the gravity, the seriousness of this day. It says, whatever soul shall not be afflicted, whatever person shall not afflict their souls on this day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Let's continue on here with the slide. And whatsoever soul it be that doth any work in that same day, that same soul will I destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest. And you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month. That even From even unto even shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So the end of the ninth day through the tenth day is what we find near the end. 
So we see here that Yom Kippur falls on the 10th day, the end of the ninth day through the end of the 10th day. Now the word atonement in Hebrew is Kippur. Kippur means expiation, forgiveness, based on Strong's. It means to cover or to make amends for sin in some way. Or we know that Yahweh did this for Israel in the Old Testament as we see here. Now, during this time for Israel, sins were removed or taken away through what's called the Azazel or the scapegoat. Now, we'll look at that in more detail later, the Azazel or the scapegoat. But this was the manner of the way in which Yahweh removed the sins of Israel. They covered the sins. Now, we also see here that this day is called a holy convocation. A very important word, holy convocation. This comes from the Hebrew Kodesh Mikra. It literally means a sacred or a holy coming together or meeting. It also refers to a rehearsal of some sort. So on this feast, we're commanded. We're commanded to come together. And again, I know some people physically can't come during this time. But if we can come, we should come. Yahweh commands that we come and we fellowship, we congregate during this time. It's not optional. Something we should do as believers should come to fellowship during this time. Now we also see here that we're to afflict our souls on this day. What does that mean, to afflict our souls on this day? Where to afflict our souls means to go without food and drink. It means to fast. That's how we're to afflict our souls Now, we're going to delve more into this as we go through this message. I'm going to move on and look at some of the other items we find here. But to afflict our souls, again, is to fast. Now, in verse 32, we find that this feast day is called a Sabbath of rest. Now, the word Sabbath here is very special, and it's special because it's unique to the uh, the other feast days. This day in Hebrew is called a Shabbat. Shabbat, this is the only feast day day where the word Shabbat is used. It's the only feast day where that word is used. The other feast days, it uses another word, and that is Shabbathon. This is called a Shabbat or a Shabbat. The the other feast days are called a Shabbathon, both derived from the same root, but a different Hebrew word. Now, why do you suppose Yahweh uses a different word, Hebrew word, to describe the Sabbath? Well, I believe he does so to show that there is a difference. There's a difference between Yom Kippur and some of the other holy days. And the difference is this day is holier. This day is more sacred. This day is, if you will, stricter. It has more requirements with this day. Again, and we find here that no work is is allowed on this day. We find that anybody who does any work on this day, that that person, that soul, shall be destroyed. So there's, there's a seriousness about this day that we don't find with the other days. So this day is very special. Now, again, we're told here to afflict our souls, to afflict our souls during this time. What does that mean, to afflict our souls? Well, I've already mentioned this. This is, means to fast. Now, we find this in part through the Hebrew. The Hebrew for afflict is anah, anah. Strong's defines a gnaw as, quote, of looking down, a browbeating, to oppress. Now, the vines defines this word a gnaw as to afflict, to oppress, or to humble. So a gnaw conveys a thought of 
causing some sort of affliction, some sort of oppression, some sort of hardship, some sort of humility that we do not experience naturally. You know, considering that we've gone without food and drink for about 19 hours now, based on my math, I may be off by an hour or two, but about 19 hours, I would imagine we're feeling a bit afflicted. I would imagine we're feeling a bit weak. I would imagine that we're feeling a bit of a, you know, a hardship. Maybe some of you aren't, but most of you probably are in some way. Now, beyond this, we also find evidence for fasting in the New or in the, in, the, in the scriptures, in the Old and New Testament. So I'm going to look at a few examples here. The first one is in Psalms 35, verse 13. So Psalms 35, 13 says this, but it says, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. You see, sackcloth, by the way, was a garment of repentance. It was a garment of humility. And it says, I humbled my soul. How? It says here that he humbled his soul through fasting, and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. So we find here the word humbled, and the word humbled is from the Hebrew anah, the same word used to afflict, that we're to afflict ourselves. This is the same word used here when it says humbled. It says humbled, anah. And we also see here that this, this passage, it says that they humbled themselves through, through what? Through fasting through fasting, going without food and drink. Now we see another example for fasting in Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. And uh, here, Jonah chapter 3, if we want to advance the slide here, still without a clicker, (laughs) technical difficulties. Jonah chapter 3, 5 through 7, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed Elohim and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them, For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh. By the degree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed, nor do what? He says, nor drink water. Now, we might remember the story of Jonah, the story here, Jonah was commanded by Yahweh to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, prophesy against her sins. Now, Jonah, Jonah thought that he was going to go and prophesy, and of course they would refuse to listen, and Yahweh would strike Jonah down, or strike Nineveh down. Now, we know that this did not happen. We find here that the Assyrians repented. They repented when Jonah came to them and, and proclaimed the prophecy of Almighty Yahweh in the impending doom that they would suffer. We find here that the nation of Assyria repented of their sins. Now, how did they repent before Yahweh? What did they do? Did they sing to Yahweh? Did they go and worship their pagan mighty one? No, it says here that they they fasted. They fasted, and this included both people, and all of livestock. And it says here that they neither ate nor drank. So we find here a true fast. I know some people over the years, I've done it myself, where they've done a partial fast. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. If you want to do a partial fast, go without food for a day and maybe drink water, that's fine. But that's not really a biblical fast. A biblical fast is one in which we abstain from both food and drink, as we find here. That is a biblical fast. 
another type of fast. We don't want to be partial, but we're commanded to fully fast on this day as we find here through this example, and that is that we are to abstain from both food and drink. So we find here in an effort to show the repentance, the people of Nineveh humbled themselves, say Anah, they humbled themselves and they fasted before Almighty Yahweh. Now we see another example of fasting in Luke. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. So if we can advance the slide one more time here. Luke 5, verse 33. And just as a key, when I give the scripture, that normally means we can proceed with that slide. So Luke 5, verse 33, it says, And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make many prayers? And likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. So in this passage, Yahshua was asked by the Jews why his disciples did not follow John's disciples and the Pharisees in fasting. Why? Why they were neglecting this. Notice here that this passage defines fasting as, again, abstaining from both food and drink. This is, again, a full fast. This is how Yahweh defines a fast within his word, and this is how we are to fast. Today we are to humble ourselves, we are to afflict ourselves by abstaining from both food and drink, as we find through this example and the many others like it. You know, remember again that Yahweh commands that we afflict our souls. And again, as we see in Scripture, this is through fasting. You know, one lesson of fasting is that we realize how weak we are. We realize how weak we are without Yahweh's provision. That is one of the blessings about fasting is because it's a good reminder how weak we are without Yahweh's blessings in our lives. So I think we need to really remember that today. We need to contemplate that, that thought. We need to contemplate how much we need our Father in heaven, how much we rely upon him, how much he provides for us, and how much we are, we, we are nothing without him. Now I want to consider one more example. One more example, this time in Acts 27, verse 9. And it says there in Acts 27, 9, Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. Paul admonished them. So we find here one of Paul's travels. And we see that this travel occurred during when? It occurred during a fast. Now what is this referring to? This word fast comes from the Greek nestia. Nestia refers to a fast, and according to Strong's, refers specifically to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. So we find from the New Testament that the word fast refers to the Day of Atonement, showing that the Day of Atonement is considered a fast. And I point this out because some will try to make the point that we don't need to fast on this day. And yet we know in the New Testament this day is called a fast. Now there's two uh, important truths here. Number one, we see here that there is a connection between the Day of Atonement and fasting. And that's very important to recognize. And number two, we see that the feast days are mentioned in the New Testament. Now, I know for those of you here, you know this. This is no news for you, but maybe somebody is listening. They may not know this. They may not realize that the feast days are mentioned in the New Testament. Or this is one of many feast days mentioned in the New Testament. As a point of trivia, the only day mentioned by name, not mentioned by name, is trumpets. That's the only feast day not mentioned specifically within the confines of the New Testament. Now, we can see trumpets prophetically, I believe. We can see it all over the New Testament prophetically, but we don't see it by name. But all the other feast days, including atonement through, the, through this word fast, we find through the New 
Testament. So it's a very important concept to understand. So again, we see here through the New Testament that we are to afflict ourselves through fasting. So it's again important that we understand this concept of affliction, this concept concept of anon, and how this works. You know, speaking about humility, and, and this is this is another aspect, I believe, of this day, humility and humbling ourselves before Yahweh. You know, I believe that this is one of the most important attributes for believers. I want to talk just briefly about humility. And I want to give an example here. I want to give an example, and just, just for a moment, reflect upon something Yahshua said in Matthew 20, verse 28. So Matthew 20, verse 28, says there, Even as a son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life, it says, a ransom for many. So this is one of the best examples, I believe, of humility within Scripture. The word minister here is from the Greek word diakonio. Diakonio means to be an attendant. That is to wait upon. Literally refers to somebody who serves. So we find the purpose for Yahshua's coming was not to be served, but to do what? His purpose for coming was to serve. His purpose was to help others. That's what Yahshua's purpose was when he came to this earth. And it's something, as believers, we need to really be cognizant of. We should be doing as he did, right? We should be following in his examples. We should be serving as he served. He came not to be served. You know, if anybody was in the position to be served, it was Yahshua the Messiah. Think about it. But again, this was not his purpose. This was not his intent. Now, what do you suppose Yahshua chose to serve and not to be served? Whereas with everything he did in life, He wanted to set the example. He wanted to set the example. He wanted to show by his own values, his own ethics, how and what we should be doing as believers. So Yahshua not only taught humility, but he also showed humility through his own life by again humbling himself. And again, as we find in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, we're to follow in his examples. Well, let me ask, do we serve those around us? Do we have a spirit of selflessness, selflessness, a willingness to help those around us? Or are we always looking out for number one? You know, human nature is always to look out for number one. That's just the way we're wired. We're, we're, we're wired to look out for number one. You can see that from infancy. But, but that's not what we should be doing as believers. What we should be doing as believers is looking for opportunities to serve, to, to help, to, to show that we care for others. Yahshua says here that we must become servants to one another if we're going to be blessed in the kingdom. And that's such an important concept to understand. This is why as believers we must overcome pride, as Yahshua did. And by the way, humility and serving are great examples for the upcoming Feast of Tabernacles. You know, I always, during the Feast of Tabernacles, I always try to make this point that we uh, get out what we put into it. If we put nothing in, you know, some people, they just stay to themselves and do nothing. And then they leave and they say, that was a horrible time. And some people, they get involved and they do things. And they say, that was a great feast. You see, we, 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 we get out what we put in. So I would encourage everybody today to not only think about it today, but think about it for these upcoming days as feast, how we can serve, how we can pitch in, how we can help, how we can humble ourselves before others. Such an important point. I want to transition now and talk about how Israel observed this day in the Old Testament. You know, one of the unique things about this feast is how much information we find about it within Scripture. So let me give you another piece of trivia. We don't find another feast 
with an entire chapter dedicated to it. But we find that with, I shouldn't say that completely. We do have Passover. We do have Passover. It also speaks about the feast. But this day is very, very unique in that way. We really don't see anything quite like it within Scripture. So the entire chapter of Leviticus 16 is dedicated to this one day. And I want to begin there with verse 1. Verse 1. It says, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. And remember what happened there. The two sons of Aaron, they thought they knew they knew better. So they wanted to offer this strange fire before Yahweh. And so Yahweh said, No, we don't do that. And Yahweh smote them down with fire, and they died. Yahweh obliterated them because they refused to, to, to acknowledge and to respect and to show the, the compliance that they should. It says, When they offered before Yahweh and died, and Yahweh said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all into, uh, all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. So we have few, few, uh, see a few things here. It says here that Yahweh appeared before the mercy seat. For those who may not know, the mercy seat was the cover that covered the Ark of the Covenant. It comes from the Hebrew kaporeth, kaporeth, Yom Kippur, kaporeth, related. We see here that the mercy seat, which Yahweh's glory rested upon, is connected to this thought of mercy or compassion. Isn't that a, a great thing? This seat that represented this, this cover that represented Yahweh's seat. The name of this covering is, is, is a described with a term that connects it with Yahweh's mercy and his compassion. You know, one thing we see in scripture is just how compassionate Yahweh is. It's really incredible. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalms 103. And there it talks about how Yahweh's love is so great, how he removes our sins as far as east is from the west. How he does not remember our sins. Yahweh is a mighty one of love, and we see this first and foremost through this kaporth, through this covering of the Ark of the Covenant, where Yahweh abode, where he sat, was a place of mercy, was a place of compassion. We also see here that the high priest put on holy linens, which I believe symbolized purity. You know, as believers today, we're to walk in this same purity, especially knowing that our bodies represent Yahweh's temple, and Yahweh's temple is where the Holy Spirit resides, the scripture says. So again, it's so important that we understand this concept, this, this notion of purity. We see this connection here with these clo- this clothing is symbolized purity, or we were to walk in purity. We also see here that the priest had to wash his flesh in water. Again, we see this as an act of cleansing, an act of purity. You know, I believe also we see a connection here with the baptism. Baptism. You know, at baptism, all our sins are removed through the blood of the Messiah, through, that wa- through the uh, burial of water. Well, let's continue on with scripture here, verse 5. Leviticus 16, verse 5 through 6, it says, And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. So notice here that the bullock was for who? The bullock was for Aaron and for his family. 
which is for himself, and to make atonement for himself and for his house. So why do you suppose here that Aaron had to offer a bullock for himself and his family instead of something like a goat or maybe a pigeon or something? Why, why a bullock? Where different animals within the sacrificial system had different values. And that's what we see here. We see that a greater offering was required for Aaron because Aaron was a high priest. You see, because of his position, he required a greater offering. And that's what we see here. The bullock had more value than a goat. And that's why he's told here to offer this goat for himself and for his family. You know, in some ways, this also reminds me of ministers today. James in chapter 3, he says there, not to have many ministers, not to have many ministers among you, not to have many masters, it says, but ministers is what what it's referring to. And it says, knowing that they shall receive the heavier condemnation. You see, those who minister in the word, those who minister in the word, Yahweh has high expectations for them. They must meet a standard. And that's why Yahweh says that a minister must be above reproach. You know, for those who do minister, this should be a sobering thought. We find this in both the Old and New Testament, this concept that those who come before Yahweh, they have to abide by a higher standard. And if they don't, they just don't qualify. And that's just, that's just the way it is. Yahweh wants those who are willing to sacrifice, those who are willing to really meet that high standard. Now let's continue on verse 7. It says, And he shall take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one goat for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat. Again, we've talked about the scapegoat, the Azazel in the Hebrew. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which Yahweh's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. This was not the Azazel. This was Yahweh's goat. But the goat on which the lot fell to to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before Yahweh. So that's one of the other things unique here just to bring out. The scapegoat was kept alive. The Azazel was kept alive. It wasn't sacrificed. Yahweh's goat was sacrificed. To make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So we see here two goats were presented before Aaron. One would be Yahweh's goat, and this would be used as a sin offering. And the other would be used as a scapegoat, or as it's also called the live goat. The Azazel, as we find within Hebrew. So how were these goats chosen? Well, these goats were chosen through lots. So they would cast lots. So how was this done? How was this? Well, no one really knows for sure, but we do have a study I want to share with you. I have it on the slide, so if you want to transition here. And uh, this is a note from the Restoration Study Bible. And um, it says this, the process of casting lots consisted of an actual process. Now, this is a reference, another reference from the Jameson Foster and Brown commenter. It says, Jewish writers have thus described the priest placing one of the goats on his right hand and the other on his left took his station by the altar and cast into an urn two pieces of gold exactly similar inscribed, the one with the words for Yahweh and the other were, and the other for Azazel, the scapegoat. After having well shaken them together, he put both his hands into the box and took up a lot in each hand or in each that in his right hand he put on the head of the goat which stood on his right and that in his left he dropped on the other 
In this manner, the fate of each was decided. So we see here the way possibly they would determine between the scapegoat and Yahweh's goat, two pieces of gold that had the names, again, one Azazel and one Yahweh's goat. And from this, it would determine the fate of those goats. Now, what were the differences between these goats? Or Yahweh's goat, again, was to be used as a sin offering. We find that and for the people. So it was an offering for the people. And the scapegoat, I think the best way to look at the scapegoat is that it was a vessel for Israel's sins. It was a vessel for Israel's sins. It was the sins of Israel was transferred to this scapegoat symbolically. It was symbolically placed upon this scapegoat. And we're going to see this as we go through this passage, how this, how this took place. But again, one goat was for Yahweh. That was a goat that was a sin offering. That was a goat that would die. And then we had the, the Azazel or the scapegoat, and that goat was kept alive. Now, after this, we see here that a fit man would take the goat out of the camp into the wilderness. So again, keep in mind that the scapegoat is not the sin offering. The sun offering was Yahweh's goat. I want to read one more commentary. I also have this on the slide here, and this is on the scapegoat. It says, a scapegoat called Azazel in the Hebrew, meaning the goat of departure. So that's what it means in the Hebrew. This goat likely represented Satan, and we're going to see that more as we go through this message, who is led away into the wilderness. Upon this goat, Aaron was to lay both his hands and confess over it all the sins and transgressions of Israel. In effect, transferring all sin back onto the adversary, the originator of sin. Then a fit man, likely symbolic of Yahshua, or I believe also maybe even perhaps an angel, but through Yahshua for sure, led the goat away into oblivion. And there he would die, as in Romans 16.20, and also Isaiah 27.1, Ezekiel 28.19, Hebrews 2, verse 14. So this is our understanding of this scapegoat, that it was represented that it represented Satan the devil, that as this goat received the sins of Israel, that Satan at his uh, Yahshua's return will also deliver the sins of mankind upon the evil one. We'll, we'll talk more about that as we go through. Well, for now, I want to continue on here. So if we want to transition to the next slide, I don't have the verses actually on the slide though, but it's Leviticus 16, and we're going to read verses 11 through 28. So this is again how and what occurred on this day. So you have to take your, your, your Bible or, or listen to me. It doesn't matter. And by the way, I'm going to share a chart after this. The same chart I'm going to share is in the Restoration Study Bible 4th edition. So if you have a 4th edition and can't read it on the slide, you can read it in the Bible. It may, may make it a bit easier. So verse 11, it says, And Aaron shall bring the bullock. So this is a description. We've talked about the bullock. We've talked about the goats and what they symbolize. This is how these things occurred. So it says, Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and to make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. So again, because of his position, who he was, he required the bullock, not a goat. And he shall make, and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before Yahweh, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil, the holy of holies, is what he's speaking about here. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before Yahweh, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony 
that it die not. So you see, he wanted to obscure. He wanted to obscure the, the, uh, the room and Yahweh's presence in this room. So he would take and he would add this smoke, this incense. Verse 14, and he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. So seven times, just real quickly, what does the number seven symbolize? For some say seven symbolizes perfection. Some others say it symbolizes completion. Whatever the case is, it's a good number. Perfection or completion. So we find here Yahweh does everything for a reason. And numbers have meaning and value to Yahweh. And I believe that's why he's sprinkling this seven times. It's the symbolic value of what this represents. Seven times eastward before the altar or before the, the ark. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger. We read that, verse 15. Then shall he kill a a goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring his blood within the veil. So he goes into the Holy of Holies twice. Some people have this notion that you only go in once. Well, actually, he went in twice. It's just one day out of the year he would do this. But he would go in twice. He would go in once for himself, and then he would go in again for the people. Then shall he kill a goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring the blood within the veil and dew with the blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So he is purifying. He is purifying the temple. He is purifying the Holy of Holies because it says of the uncleanness, the sin, the iniquities of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before Yahweh and make an atonement for it. And shall take the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and pour it upon the horns of the altar round about. This was the altar that was outside. He would pour the blood of both from both the the bullock and the goat outside. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So he's cleaning the altar. So you see, he's cleaning the tabernacle. He's cleaning the altar through this blood. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So again, the live goat, this was a scapegoat. This was the Azazel. This was a goat that would be brought out by, by a fit man, as we'll see here in just a moment. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. So he placed his hands upon the head of this goat. And when he did this, it says that he would confess over the iniquities, over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. And shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. So again, we see here that he would take this live goat, this Azazel, this scapegoat, and he would place his hands upon this goat. He would transfer, he would symbolically transfer the sins of Israel from them to this goat. And then a fit man, it says, would take this goat away from the camp. It says, and the goat shall bear Upon him all their iniquities upon a land not inhabited into a wilderness. And he shall let 
go the goat in the wilderness. So, again, the sin offering was to cleanse the sanctuary. The live goat was to then take the sins of Israel and bring them outside of the camp. There's a distinction between those two. In verse 23, it says, And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments. Because, again, these linen garments, these were special. And these were only to be used for special reasons, special causes. Normally, he would have another garment on. So he's taking this garment off because he has finished with his, with his tasks. It says, which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go of the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterwards come into the camp. Again, the man had to wash his clothes because that scapegoat carried away the sins of all of Israel. This was the same reason, by the way, when Yahshua took our sins upon himself, why he says, my El, my El, why have you forsaken me? The man was unclean because he took the scapegoat outside into the camp. Yahshua was unclean when he took our sins upon himself. And that's why Yahweh had to forsake him. And that's why, that's why this man that takes his goat out, has to wash and bathe before he can return back into the camp. Verse 27, And the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. So again, these were this was a sin offering, the, the goat and the bullock. So they would take what was remaining, what was left, and they would take it outside the camp because, again, it was unclean. And they would burn the remaining. They would burn what was left. And verse 28 says, He that burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe, him, bathe his flesh in water. And afterward he shall come into the camp. So again, the same idea, they're the same concept. The man by... by burning, disposing of the goat and of the bullock was unclean. He had to bathe himself in water. And I have another slide here. So if we can advance the slide. And this is also in the Restoration Study Bible, 4th edition. This was a new chart we added from this message. And here it gives a chronological account of what happens. I'm going to go through these real quickly because sometimes we kind of lose track as to what is happening and when it's happening. So if you can read this, great. If not, again, refer to your fourth edition Restoration Study Bible. So the high priest sacrifices a bullock for himself and for the family. That's the first thing. High priest takes coals and incense and enters a holy of holies. And again, he does that to obscure the view. Using his finger, he sprinkles the blood from the bullock seven times on the mercy seat eastward. The high priest then leaves the Holy of Holies and kills a goat as a sin offering for the people. He then takes the coals of incense, and for the second time, again, there's twice, two times, he enters again into the Holy of Holies. 
Using his finger, he sprinkles the blood from the goat seven times on the mercy seat eastward, just as he did for the bullock. The high priest then leaves the Holy of Holies. High priest then pours out the remaining blood from the bullock and goat on the horns of the brazen altar. The live goat, or the scapegoat, then is brought to the high priest. The high priest lays his hands on the live goat, or the scapegoat, symbolically transferring Israel's sins to this scapegoat. The scapegoat is taken from the camp into the wilderness by a, quote, fit man. The high priest removes his linen garments, bathes, and puts on normal priestly attire, comes back into the camp. The high priest offers burnt offerings and the, uh, for himself and for the people. The fit man, who took the goat into the wilderness, bathes, and comes back into the camp. The remains of the bullock and the goat used for the sin offerings are taken outside the camp and burned. He that burns the remains, bathes, and then comes back into the camp. So that is the Day of Atonement for Israel. And again, the Day of Atonement was about removing the sins, reconciliation, reconciliation with Yahweh. And that's really what it, what it is for us, and that's what it will be in the future. Now, speaking about the future, what does this time prophetically represent? What does it represent based on Yahweh's word? Well, I believe it represents two things, two things. Number one, I believe it represents the removal of Satan the devil. I believe it represents Satan's removal. Number two, and I'm going to look into this a little bit more than I have in years past, where it represents, I believe, Yahshua's forgiveness or Yahweh's forgiveness and reconciliation of Israel in the millennium. We're going to see that. It represents Yahweh's forgiveness of Israel in the millennium. And we're going to see several examples of when and how that occurs. Well, let's first consider the first one, and that is the removal of Satan the devil. Where do we see that? Well, I think we see an example of this in Revelation 20. So if we can turn there, transition there with a the slide, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, the thousand years here, this is a thousand years of the millennium. In fact, that's where we get the word millennium. It means a thousand years. So we see here that in the millennium, Satan's going to be bound. He's not going to be out and active anymore. He's going to be bound. And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be finished. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. So we see here that when Yahshua returns after the resurrection of the saints, the saint will be bound. He's going to be bound and placed in a bottomless pit. It says here that an angel will take a great chain and bind him for the 1,000 years of the millennium. And as a result, no longer will he be here to deceive or to cause chaos during this time. Now, I believe that we see several parallels between this and what we saw in the Old Testament with the Azazel or scapegoat. So I want to, I have a slide here for this, and it shows some parallels between the scapegoat, I believe, and Satan the devil. So as the, as the uh, sin of Israel was transferred to the scapegoat, I believe that the sins of mankind will be transferred to Satan the devil, the originator of all sin. As a fit man bound and took the scapegoat into the wilderness, 
An angel will bind Satan with a great chain and place him into the bottomless pit. So I believe that this great that this angel that takes Satan and binds him, that this is probably the fulfillment of this fit man. And the last one here is a scapegoat was kept alive. Satan will be kept alive for the duration of the millennium. And some people, just as a real quick side note, they believe that Yahshua was a scapegoat. Or again, Yahshua was sacrificed. And that happened at Passover. And the scapegoat was never sacrificed. So there's not a real good fit here between the scapegoat or the Azazel and Yahshua the Messiah. But again, it is a good fit, I believe, for Satan the devil. You know, based on the, uh, what we find here, you know, I believe that the scapegoat foreshadows, again, the removal of Satan the devil, the binding of Satan the devil. For a moment, think about this one event, how important this is. You know, we're talking about the removal of the evil one. You know, to me, it makes sense that a feast day might depict this event prophetically. And I believe it does. I believe it depicts this moment. For me, it's easy to see how this event would be, again, foreshadowed by a feast. Now, in addition to the removal of Satan, and what I really want to focus on today is, is um, what, this other, what, this, what this represents also represents. And it represents, I believe, Yahweh's forgiveness upon Israel in the millennium through the shed blood of Yahshua the Messiah. And we're going to see examples of that. And the first example we see is Jeremiah 31. Now, Jeremiah 31, this is the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's a very easy passage to remember, Jeremiah 31, 31. And if you're real quick, you can say Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And that's the conclusion of that passage. But it's a very important passage, the new covenant. Now, there's a lot of questions about the new covenant. Some ask, are we in the new covenant? Some ask, is the new covenant completely fulfilled yet? And I believe that we're within the new covenant, but that the new covenant has yet to be fulfilled completely. And I'm going to explain why as we read through this passage. So Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my laws in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. If we can transition the slide once more. If we can transition the slide once more. You know, when, when, when that's done in Hebrew, it's done for emphasis when you repeat something. Anyway, trying to fill the gap there. So, continuing on here, it says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they... All shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. Now notice what it says. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So again, this passage is speaking about the new covenant. While I believe, again, we're in the new covenant, I don't believe that we've fully seen the full fulfillment of the new covenant. You know, for one, for one, we find here that when the new covenant is fulfilled, it says here that we're not going to have to go and tell our neighbor about Yahweh. It says, for all will know him. Or does all know Yahweh today? Does everybody on this earth know Yahweh? Do they understand his word? Do they know of him? No, most people have no clue about Yahweh or what he requires from them. Well, in the millennium, we know that this will change. Because in the millennium, we know that Yahshua is going to reign and rule over this earth. So the full fulfillment for the new covenant has not yet occurred. 
This will not happen until Yahshua returns to this earth and establishes Yahweh's kingdom. At this time, the new covenant will be fulfilled. But I believe we're in the new covenant, but I believe there's aspects about the new covenant that has not been fulfilled yet. And one of those aspects, again, is that we have to preach the word because people don't know the word. But in the millennium, that's not going to be the case. We're not going to have to preach the word like we're doing now. We're not going to have to go, go and talk to our neighbor and say, do you know Yahweh? For it says, during this time, all will know him. You know, as we see in Micah chapter 4, his kingdom will be above all other kingdoms. There's going to be no, no denying the knowing of Yahweh. Now, I believe we see a promise here that also correlates with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It says here that Yahweh is going to forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Now, he says this after he talks about how everybody will know Yahweh. So the context, in my opinion, here is that this is in the millennium. So we certainly we find here that Yahweh is going to forgive Israel in the millennium through Yahshua's blood when he comes and regathers them to the land. Now, we see another example of this in Ezekiel 36.22. Ezekiel 36.22 says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and he shall, actually, that's just a phrase here, so I'm going to read this from Scripture here. It's kind of a long passage, but I felt it was needed. So Ezekiel um, 36, you may have to turn with your Bibles, or you can just listen, does not matter. Uh, verses 22 through 38. So a little bit of a long passage, but I think it's worth reading. And where are we to go to t- today anyway? <laughs> this is Yom Kippur. Okay, verse 22 through 38. It says, Therefore says, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whether you want. So we find, just a real quick acknowledgement, Yahweh's name. Here we find that they were profaning Yahweh's name, but we see the importance of, of sanctifying the name here. And I will sanctify my great name, Yahweh says, which you have profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am Yahweh, that I am Yahweh, saith my sovereign Yahweh, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. For I believe this is a reference to the millennium. This is speaking about when Yahweh is going to take his people Israel and bring them back to their land. In verse 25 it says, And I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I give, gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your Elohim. This is, again, a time of great reconciliation when Yahweh is bringing his people back. This is millennium. This, is not, this has not occurred yet. This has not happened. In verse 29, it says, And I... I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit 
of the tree and the incense of the field. And you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall you remember your own evil doings and your doings that were not good. And shall loathe yourselves in, the own, in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. You know, in some ways, that's a lesson right there for the Day of Atonement. During the Day of Atonement, we are to loathe our sins. We are to loathe our transgressions. Because this is a day to reflect upon our sins, upon the iniquities we've committed, and to make it right with Yahweh, to be resolute that we're not going to continue in these, those old ways, that we're going to do better. So again, this is a really great passage. This is a good summation of what we should, what we should be doing during the Day of Atonement, that we should begin reconciling with Yahweh, that we should be considering the sins that we're guilty of and considering how we can do better. Because believe me, we can all do better. We can all do better. Verse 32. Not for your sakes do I this, saith my sovereign Yahweh, be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities. So notice that. What does he says? What does he say there? He says, when I cleanse you of your iniquities... When I bring you back, cleanse you of your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste wastes shall be builded. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas to lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, this land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. So here we see a reference to the Garden of Eden. If this does not show that this is prophetic, that this is not of today, this is for the future. I'm not sure what would. Be like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate, the ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about, you shall know that I am Yahweh. Build the ruins, places, and plant. So he says the heathens will know him at this time. Again, we see all these clues as to when this time will occur. This time will occur when Yahshua returns. Because all will know him. All heathen, all nations will know him. Now, Yahweh have spoken it, I will do it. Verse 37, thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, will I, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel and to do it for him. I will increase them with men like a flock, as a holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts. So shall the way cities be filled with flocks of men and they shall know that I am Yahweh. You know, I believe that this is somewhat of a dual prophecy. I do believe some of it is historic, but I believe most of it is prophetic. And I believe it's prophetic of the millennium, of the millennium. This is when Yahshua is going to come. He's going to gather Israel. He's going to bring them back to their own land. And then it says here that he's going to cleanse them of their sins. He's going to remove them from their, he's going to remove their, their iniquities from them. Again, this is what Yom Kippur is all about. It's about the removal of sin. It's about making things right. It's about reconciling the relationship. And we find that prophecy says when Yahshua comes, he will do precisely this at his return. So as Yahweh forgave Israel in the Old Testament, we find here that he will do the same when his son returns to this earth. He will gather Israel together. He will cleanse them of their sins. And I believe that this is the fulfillment for the Day of Atonement for Yom Kippur. Ezekiel 37 is the last passage I want to refer to with this. 
Ezekiel 37, 21 through 23. And say unto them, Thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they are gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations. So again, that's the first clue. When will Israel no longer be two nations or no longer be two nations? They are two nations today. In fact, there are many nations today. We have Judah and then we have scattered all throughout the nations, Israel. But there's coming a day when Israel will no longer be two nations. They will be one nation. And this will happen in the millennium. No longer two nations, but one nation. They shall neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them. I will save them out of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned. And listen, he says, I will cleanse them. I will cleanse them. They shall be my people and I will be their Elohim. Now I believe that this prophecy is for the future, pointing to the return of the Messiah when he will again gather the people of Israel back together and bring them to their own land. You know, I didn't read this, but in this passage we find a reference to two sticks. One stick referring to Ephraim, one stick referring to Judah. And he's going to bring these two sticks together. He's going to form them into one stick. And no longer will Israel again be two nations or two sticks. They're going to be one stick, one nation. We also know that during this time in this prophecy is that King David will rule over them. King David will rule over the nation of Israel. Yahshua is going to rule over everybody. But there's going to be nations in the millennium as we, if we search it out. But it says King David will rule over them. Now I want to focus on, again, what we find here and the prophetic importance of what we see, and the fact that these things will not happen until the millennium. And what I really want to focus on is the is this um, acknowledgement that Yahweh will cleanse Israel when he returns through his son. When Yahshua returns, it says that he's going to gather the people together, he's going, and then he's going to cleanse the people of Israel by removing their sins. Again, Yom Kippur is all about forgiveness. Yom Kippur is all about making things right. And we know that this certainly fits the context of what we find here. You know, when Yahshua returns to gather the people of Judah and Israel and to restore them back to their land, he will forgive their sins through his shed blood. You know, as it says in Hebrews 9, verse 28, so Messiah once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Again, I believe that this is a fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, the reconciling of Israel, of new Israel, of future Israel in the millennium when Yahweh restores them to their own land. This day is about forgiveness, reconciliation, restoring a people from sin. And this is precisely what the Messiah will do when he restores Israel back to their land. Now, this view also follows a prophetic pattern we find within Scripture. I want to spend just a few moments talking about this. I have two slides on this. The first slide here shows the prophetic fulfillment of Passover from the Feast of Weeks. So we know that Passover represents Yahshua's death and sacrifice. But see here that the Feast of Love and Bread represents his resurrection from the grave. 
And then we see that Pentecost represents the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we find that there's a chronological aspect to the feast days, that they're fulfilled chronologically, that one follows the other. So again, Yahshua's death, Yahshua's resurrection. And what do we find in the New Testament about the Comforter? In John, we find that the Comforter could not come until who left? Yahshua had to leave before the Comforter could come. You see, even the Comforter, Yahshua played a role in. Because if Yahshua had not come and died and and was resurrected, the Comforter could have never came. But Yahshua came and died, allowing for the Comforter to come. Okay, next slide here. So this is referring to the fall feast. Next slide. So we have trumpets. And this represents, we believe, and I think there's strong evidence for this, Yahshua's second coming and the resurrection of the saints. We have atonement, which we believe represents the removal of Satan and the forgiveness of Israel's sins, the reconciliation of Israel. Tabernacles, we believe, represents the millennial kingdom. And the last great day represents the great white throne judgment and the second death. So notice here how the forgiveness of Israel and the gathering of Israel falls right aligned chronologically with the other feast days. We have trumpets again. Yahshua's coming. He's going to be, he's going to resurrect the saints and then he's going to regather Israel. And then we have the start of the kingdom. So for me, this, this pattern shows, shows why this is the fulfillment, why the fulfillment is the forgiveness of Israel in the millennium when Yahweh regathers his people. So I have uh, one more, uh, I think one more slide here. And I want to really show, have not done, did not do this as a new slide, and I've never done this, but I wanted to show Yahshua's involvement in the feast days. Yahshua's involvement in the feast days. Because you know Yahshua's involved in every single feast day, somehow, some way. So Yahshua died on Passover, and through his blood brought salvation to mankind. Yahshua was resurrected on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, ensuring the possibility of our own resurrection. I don't know if you've thought about it, but if Yahshua was never resurrected, we would have no Savior, and we would have no hope for a resurrection. Based on John 14 and Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was made possible through Yahshua's death and resurrection. Yahshua was going to return, so that, that's the... Um, Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Another one here is Yahshua is going to return on the Feast of Trumpets and offer eternal life to those called and chosen. We've already talked about that. As promised on the Day of Atonement, when Yahshua returns, he's going to bring back and cleanse the people of Israel from their sins. As depicted through the Feast of Tabernacles, Yahshua is going to reign and rule in the millennium with the purpose of restoring truth and righteousness. And as shown through the last great day, Yahshua is going to judge all of mankind during the great white throne judgment. So again, we see just how pivotal Yahshua is to the feast days. But as shown specifically through this day, I believe that through Yahshua's death, through the extension of Yahshua's death, Yahweh is going to cleanse the people of Israel when Yahshua comes to gather Israel once more to their land. I believe that this is a fulfillment and why this day is so important. So as we've heard in this message, this is a very special day, a day of Forgiveness, a day of reconciliation, a day of remembrance, a day that Yahweh showed forgiveness not only in the old, but will do so again. Now to close this um, day, this service, with a very special ironic blessing. So if you would all stand.
And Allah pronounces blessing upon you and certainly wish you the very best according to Yahweh's will. Yahweh Rekeka Yahweh, Vayes Mareka Yair Yahweh Penevalaka, Dikuneka, Yase Yahweh Penevalaka, Viasim Laka Shalom. And that is Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Yahweh bless you.